welcome to the Business of Property podcast. I'm Simon. I'm Stuart. We're both property people running our own businesses. This podcast is just us chatting, as we often do, about anything and everything property. This week, we're going to have a go at chatting about some recent property news and stats and things we've found interesting and hope that you'll find our views on them interesting as well. We're going to start out looking at the recent Zoopla house price index. And it's talking about stats going up to July, up to and including July. So, Stuart, do you want to start us off? What, what did you notice in, in this report? Well, it's, it's one of these bits of news where any of us that are in property and listen to property podcasts, read property materials, we all know that the market is doing well. It's a seller's market at the moment and everything's rising. But the elements that caught my eye from Zoopla were twofold. One they're saying there are 26% fewer properties on the market versus this time last year, which could make sense in, in some regards, but also that demand is a fifth higher. And even those of us like me who might not be fastidious economists can work out that if demand's higher and we've got a lower supply, then that's just going to keep fueling what we're all seeing at the moment, which is, or certainly from the records, that, that prices are increasing, which is Great news if you're selling. Unfortunately, I started selling properties about six months ago, but not so great if you are looking for a property to buy yourself at the moment. But obviously, as as landlords and investors, this is quite interesting for us because the first question in my mind is, I wonder how this is, how long this is going to last, and that's probably something that you know we need to think about, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think it was in this report, but I saw another report from from somewhere else suggesting that they think the demand within the property market is going to continue well into 2022, which I'm unsure about. I I think already since the first drop in the stamp duty holiday, we've seen a definite softening in demand. And we've got another drop in stamp duty holiday coming up fairly soon. And we're also heading into the end of the year, which is typically slower for the property market. So I'm, I don't know, I'm very unsure about some of the, the reports being very confident about it. It's staying well up into next year. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. One thing I didn't notice as I looked through this report was how they're measuring higher demand. Did, did you notice this? I'm not quite sure how they define or how, how they measure demand being 20% higher. I didn't. And that was a thought I had as well. My view is it's got to be from people registering to buy Potential, whether that's with the agents, because I know Zoopla does have agents. So, yeah, the short answer is no, I don't know. Just in terms of how long this will last, the the only sort of alternative view that I have on that is that it's one of these pieces of momentum where I think when the market's good and prices are rising, that if you do own a property and in the back of your mind you are thinking about selling it, I would imagine there's a certainly a large proportion of people that will start thinking, well, if we don't think this is going to last much longer i'll sell now and then you know hedge my bets in the future and that itself might keep the momentum so you know for the likes of me you know i'm selling three properties at the moment and actually part of me thinks yeah we can we can put one of those on hold and i'm not too worried about it cuz i'll get it back on again in a couple of months time to still hopefully you know reap the benefits of an inflated market or an increased market and and again you know thinking about other people where they might have already been thinking about unlocking equity, then that itself may perpetuate the increase, if that makes sense. That ties in nicely with another thought I was having or question I had, which is why are there 
26% fewer properties on the market. Is it because people are looking at the market going up and saying, well, I could sell now, but if I sell in six months time, I'll get 10% more for it. Is it just because of that? Or there should really be sort of the counter side of that. People saying, oh, wow, my property's gone up 10% in the last year. Let's get on and sell it. But that doesn't seem to be enough to keep the market moving. And also there are people who do just need to move house through life. People dying and people splitting up, people getting together, people moving out of their parents' home, people moving to university, people moving with work. What's happened to reduce all of these normal, natural movements that fuel the property market so much? And yes, obviously, COVID has reduced the number of people who are moving for things like work because there's a lot more remote work going on. But I can't believe that has an effect of as big as 26% fewer properties on the market. Where are all the people who should really be selling? Yeah, it is a staggering number, actually, when you think about it, because it's always a two-sided coin, isn't it? Because you may sell knowing that you're going to get whatever the average increase is in your area, let's say 5%, then equally, you'll also be cognizant that you'll be buying at that rate too. And would that make someone hesitant to do both? Because my, my view in the past was, if I feel like I'm selling at a high point of the market, then I'd look to rent. But you know that doesn't answer the question of why fewer people are putting properties on the market and i've also just been thinking about does the the house type because the the other part of the report was looking at the increase in sales of houses over flats and when you look at the value increases across the uk yeah on average the price index of houses versus flats is you know roughly looking at the charts about three times you know in london it's it's more than that obviously but across the nation obviously the, the the price of or the value of houses has has increased much more significantly than flats. But then I'm just trying to think that shouldn't it still shouldn't impact on supply because of the, the value. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm not sure where that sort of link between supply and price and demand is sort of broken down. But let, let's just mention some of these numbers because you and I are, are staring at a, a graph and our listeners of course aren't probably. There will be a link to, to this report in the show notes at the business But if you're not able to look right now, let's talk some numbers. So this particular graph we're looking at at the moment is split between flats and houses in different areas of the country. And the area with the highest increase is houses in Wales, which have gone up just over 10% in the last year. So a general trend they pulled out in this report is that the areas that have seen the highest increases have tended to be the areas that are cheaper. So We've got Wales at that end with 10% increase in price for houses and 4.2% increase for flats. And then in London, which is obviously one of the most expensive areas of the country, we've got only 5.9% increase in houses and a decrease of 0.6% in the value of flats. So there's a big difference between the change in houses and the change in flats. And you can can see that across all areas. But then also, there's quite a big difference from 10% to 7%-ish in the the house price change between different regions as well. So it's it's a very uneven picture across different properties and different areas of the country. Mm. And yeah, what I also take from that is is just other than you know the West Midlands where it's seen the flat 
increased zero point one percent. So so let, let's just say that's flat. And London, everywhere else, has seen good growth in flats. I, I would argue, you know, from from two three percent up to four point two, and as well as you know what they're seeing in houses, you know, significant growth in houses. And yeah, I was just looking at Scotland because I, I find that one quite interesting because the flat growth is. So, this, so they're, they're at the far right. They're just next to London in terms of house growth of 5.5%. So that's the lowest of the house price growth in the 12 months to July versus flat growth of 3.4%. So actually, that's also the closest gap between flats and houses as well. So that's quite an interesting take from Scotland. Yeah, Scotland seemed to be a bit of an outlier in that, didn't they? They've got the lowest house increase, as you said, but almost the highest. I mean, the, the they're beaten by, I think, two other areas in terms of flat growth. Yeah, Wales and Northern Ireland are the only two higher. Yep. So, yeah, I, I have, don't know what's going on in Scotland, but that seems to be an indication of a, a slightly different market. Yeah. Taking place I, up there. I, I suppose the only other thing to say is that we, we're looking at regions of England versus then countries. So what is hidden in that vast <laughs> yeah, to offer up Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland versus our region this is quite different. So yeah, that, we may see a, a different figures if they were split into regions within each of those countries, I guess. Yeah, very true. Uh, it may well be that sort of in terms of population numbers, there might be similar-ish comparisons. But yes, of course, the, the, the differences within those regions are much, much larger when you're looking at a whole country, especially one that's got multiple very major cities and very, very distant, remote places as well. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. My brother-in-law's just literally travelled the Outer Hebrides for the last couple of weeks, so I'm, I'm sort of quite quite aware that there are very different places. You know, if you were to separate by region, would would I'm sure look look a little bit different and maybe follow yeah. a more similar pattern to England. Yeah. One other stat that we've got here that I think we should mention before we move on is that house sales, or actually I'm not sure whether it's just houses or whether it includes flats, but, but sales are taking an average of 26 days now. So this is from going onto the market to being sold, not the whole process completing or anything. But yes, from being listed, being sold, 26 days on average now, whereas in 2019, it was 49 days. So there's quite a big difference, pretty much a halving in the number of days it takes to, to sell properly. So again, a, a big change. So moving on, the next sort of news item we, we thought we'd talk about is tied into this. And it's some figures from HMRC about the latest property transactions saying that July saw a 65% fall in the number of property sale transactions compared to June. Although that sales figure in July is still up just over 4% on 2020. Although, of course, 2020 was a bit of an odd year in July. So I'm not quite sure how fair a comparison that is. But the, the big figure is 65% full. That just goes to show how many people were rushing to get transactions through in time for the stamp duty holiday to push up June so much that July is then 65% short of it. I, I don't know. Do you have anything to add on that, Stuart, or, or just, just surprise as well? <laughs> well, I, I suppose it's surprise, but not surprise, isn't it, given the deadlines? I guess the things I've been listening to recently showing that what we're seeing is happening across the world, you know, certainly in the Western world anyway, in the US and other countries in terms of property prices increasing dramatically and, and demand increasing. So there, there is an argument to say that, that we, we didn't actually need the uh, stamp duty holiday, but it's clearly had a, 
a major impact on sales. How much of one, we, we won't ever know. But it's amazing to think that uh, the transaction levels have dropped by two thirds you know, from that month. So interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, definitely. Definitely one to keep an eye on. So next up is a very quick one, hopefully, just to mention that a month or so ago, maybe a couple of months now, the government put out a new version of the How to Rent Guide, but with a twist. This wasn't a new version of the main document. This was a new version with a, a subtitle of an easy read How to Rent Guide. And apparently this has created a, a number of legal question marks as to which document you're actually supposed to supply. The easy read version is actually missing quite a lot of the real details, which could also cause problems if you did supply that one or if, if your tenant was relying on that one. So yeah, some difficulties and questions around that. There's a great write-up on the nearlylegal.co.uk site, and we'll include a link to that in the show notes. So if you want to know more about that, go and have a look there. And then next up is court judgment, I suppose, on RROs. So Stuart, do you want to do that one? Yeah. Again, thanks to some research that you were doing. Rent repayment orders, just for those that might not be as familiar, is just where a tenant can apply to a landlord for reasons. Most typical ones that I've researched and and looked at is where, for example, a property didn't have an HMO license or a, a valid HMO license. And if that was the case as a tenant, you could apply for a rent repayment order, which is exactly what it says on the tin. You get some rent repaid back to you because of the landlord's, I guess, not ineptitude, but uh, inability to have, have followed what is necessarily or what is legal on the property. And, and so that I've just picked, plucked one example, but there are other examples for that. So this news story is that RRRs no longer apply to superior landlords. And why that's interesting for someone like me is what that means is a superior landlord is a landlord above an existing landlord. So typically when we talk about rent to rent, you would have the house owner of a property that rents the property to the renter-renter, who then takes on that property and then sublets it for to, to tenants, whether that's an HMO or, or, or whatever it is they do with it. But this rent repayment order is, well, the initial headline is around the fact that, or what happened in this case, is that the superior landlord can no longer be sought after to make that rent repayment order. What was your summary of the reading of the of the case that, that went through? I know you had a had a bit of a summary. God, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure I want to try and give too many details because I'll probably get them wrong. There'll be a link in the show notes. You can, you can have a read if you want to know the real details. But yeah, previously, the court could chase, in the case of rent-to-rent, the, the rent-to-renter plus the, the actual owning landlord. And in this particular case, there, there are some specifics. So this may not apply to everyone in every situation. But in this particular case, the Court of Appeal found that the superior landlord, the property owner, could not be liable for the rent repayment order. It would only be the the, the lower landlord, so the sort of rent renter, that, that would actually be liable for, for making that repayment. So a little bit of potential protection for actual owning landlords who decide to go down a, a rent-to-rent approach. Yeah. And I guess my first thoughts when looking at this were, well, we should be doing this properly, whatever we're doing, because obviously I, I do rent to rent, but both the, the homeowners, and we've talked about this before, I think the homeowner probably has less liability because, you know, I guess once they've given it to, to someone to rent on their behalf, a bit like an agent, a managing agent, then you do take your foot off the gas. However, you know, the law might disagree with that. It's, the law might still might say, actually, you should still be very aware of what's happening within your house. But 
as someone that does rent to rent, it's really just another reminder that we should be doing things, obviously legally, morally, but making sure that we are completely covered in what we do because we don't want people to have to do rent repayment orders. But as, as someone that is rent to renting, we have to be very mindful of that. But then equally as a tenant, then that, that brings about a set of questions for if you're in that situation, who am I going to claim from? So that is why as, as investors and landlords ourselves, we need to make sure we're ready for, for tenants that might want to raise that prospect. Yeah, especially where in less legitimate rent-to-rent scenarios, often the rent-to-rent operator can be a company which at the first sign of trouble just goes bust, disappears. And then obviously it it leaves other people uncertain, as you say, what to do and where where to claim. Yeah. The way I operate is just that my first thought is I would never let this get to the landlord, as in, sorry, the homeowner, because I'm dealing with it. You know, I, I have made a commitment to take this property and deal with it. And therefore, you know, God willing, worst case scenario doesn't happen. But if it did, then I would make sure that my company is dealing with that and is liable for that. However, we know that not everyone deals with it the same way. And I'm not sure if we want to move on, but we we did look at the Rogue Landlords database, which immediately made me made me think of certain reports I've been reading. And when we talk about people that might not be working, operating in the best possible ways as certain Glenn A that's been in the news recently, someone that sells courses and trains people but hadn't hadn't actually paid their rent for two and a half years. You know, there, there is a database for these people, but it might not be as detailed as, as you'd expect. No, indeed. So the, the government has been running a, a rogue landlord database for the last three years or so. And in that time, they've managed to collect a grand total of 43 rogue landlords to put on put on <laughs> their list in their database. With the person I've just mentioned, that they, there's two of them. So they take up both he and his wife. <laughs> That's two. Yeah. Although I don't know if they're actually on the list. No, um, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> this is one of the problems with the, the National Rogue Landlord Database is that it's not publicly available. You can't actually just go and have a look at it. There's another one that's run by the, the Greater London Authority, just covering London. And that one is actually public. I'll include a link to that one in the, in the show notes. And you can just, just go there and, and look through the hall of shame that the landlords and the landlord companies and things that have been caught out. I believe that the national one requires you to be convicted of something in order to get listed. I think the London one has a slightly lower bar as much as the councils can can add landlords to it for failing licensing checks and other inspections that they do. So that has a few more people on it, but it's still only about 90 landlords. Quite a few of them are listed multiple times for, for multiple offences or for multiple properties that they had problems with. But I wonder how much use these really are. I mean, apart from the fact that they've got so few people on them, possibly because the bar's too high and not enough convictions are taking place or the conviction process takes a long time and we just haven't reached sort of critical mass yet. But even if they were better populated, I wonder how much use they really serve. As a tenant, do you think straight away, oh, I know, I must check the rogue landlord database before I, I sign my tenancy agreement? Has that ever occurred to you, Stuart? It hasn't. But I think something like that would be useful. And I suppose the point is that, like you say, I mean, if there's only 43 people on it and there's how many thousands of landlords, then millions, in fact, (laughs) you're not going to think about it. However, if it was made into something of use, then perhaps I would and just think, okay, you you know, because you'd want to know. But then, you know, there's another part of me that says it it all depends on what's in there. You know, what, what makes a own landlord? What's the definition? Because we all make mistakes as as tenants and landlords, 
So I think it'd have to be very clear on on what the definition of a rogue landlord is and yeah, be clear on that before it's something that, that we think would be of use because you wouldn't want you know everyone going on it for you know being two days late on a gas certificate, for example. So something that's interesting looking at the London one is that they have expiry dates for their entries as well. And some of the entries expire a few months from now sort of thing. So they're, they're not very long. But other ones, the expiry date isn't until the 2030s. So, so there's clearly a range of offences and consequences for, for those offences. But I think we're sort of aware of these things because we're in the property business and we look at property news sites and things who are very interested in this. But I just don't think your average tenant is going to be in the slightest bit aware of, of such things to, to bother checking. No. And perhaps the situation is that the, the tenants shouldn't be, perhaps the agents should be. But then I'm not sure that even agents would be that bothered. And a lot of the time, landlords may not be using agents. So, yeah, I, I'm not convinced of the real value of, of these, these rogue landlord databases. Well, well, un- until it's being used properly, then I don't think there will ever be be used for it because, yeah, you know, there's 43 people, no doubt, to make it on that list have done some pretty bad things, probably both in and out of property, which we don't want to know. But I think that probably brings us towards the end of this episode. I think it does indeed. So it only remains for me to say, please do check all the links we've mentioned about and details of the news articles that we've, we've talked about at thebusinessofproperty.com. And if you're feeling generous, which I'm, I'm sure everyone listening to this is, is wonderfully generous, please do leave us a rating and review in your favourite podcast app. Stuart and I will talk to you again next week. Bye.